Welcome aboard, everyone. My name is Sol Lancer. I'm the founder of Sol University, and I am extraordinarily delighted to present to you a gentleman that I met on Medium.com years ago. His writing caught my eye because he made things a little more interesting, as in going deeper, inviting us to reflect, inviting us to get called to action. James Finn is an LBTQ columnist. I'm reading right off his medium bio here. So if you happen to go out to medium, you'll <laughs> you'll like, well, geez, so that was creative. You read his bio. He's a former Air Force intelligence analyst and he's uh, agented, but yet published novelist. So you'll be published and agented, no doubt, soon. He lives in rural Michigan with a small cat who rules the household. Okay. Uh, Jim, did you get permission from your cat to have this interview? Thank you so much for, for inviting me. And, and actually, yes, my cat enjoyed a very sunny day today after weeks and weeks of snow, and she's out roaming. And just before, before you and I established our communications today, she settled down for a nap, and I made sure that she was okay. She'd be okay by herself for about an hour. <laughs> All right. So if we hear purring in the background at some point in time, we know what's going on. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I asked Jim if we could discuss his Suffering for Faith, LBTQ Kids article. I will place a link down to that article in the show description here. You can check that out. That was some time ago. Since that time, we have had quite a few other developments that I want to dive into as well. But let's begin there. Suffering for Faith, LGBTQ Kids. You were giving uh, a, a review of a book called Braden's story. That's right. I read the book, never expecting that it would become an article in my blog and on Medium, but it made such a powerful impact on me that that I, I really felt that I had to sit down and write something. And doesn't it always work like this? But I powered that story out in probably two or three hours. And for anyone who knows me, that's crazy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I usually spend two or three days on a story, agonizing over each word and punctuation mark. But I just pounded this out because I felt so passionate about it. And it is now, based on medium internal stats only, it's my most read story by far. I've, I've had a few stories that have gone viral off medium that have bigger numbers. But on medium, this is easily my, my most read story. Based on what you've written, it flowed because it hit close to the bone, yeah? I think so. Braden's story is by a remarkable Australian author by the name of Mason Dodd, who writes from a background of personal experience about gay and LGBTQ young people. So Braden's story is part of a trilogy. It's part one of the trilogy. I find it uh, the most powerful. But I read the other two as well. Braden is 13 years old when the story begins, and he's just remarkably well-adjusted, friendly, bright, happy, cared for in a family that puts his needs first without spoiling him. By the time Braden's story ends, he's thrown himself, uh, thankfully unsuccessfully, he's thrown himself in front of a train to try to die. What happens in between is heartbreaking and astonishing and so utterly ordinary that I just had to write about. Braden's family was much like my own. Now, haste to add, Braden, this is fiction. Braden is not a real child, but Mason Dodd wrote about him from the experiences of people he knows. And, and I could say that I've known kids like this. 
that I was a kid like this. Braden disappointed his conservative Christian family. They didn't reject him to the point that they threw him out of the family, but they strongly encouraged him not to be gay once they found out. Braden came out to them because he discovered his orientation in his 13th or 14th year, and he fell in love with someone and he shared it because he was just a happy, well-adjusted child. And he didn't understand that his conservative religious parents would put their ideology over his mental health and well-being. What makes this story important to me is that Braden's family were not ogres. They didn't beat him. They didn't scream at him. They didn't do any of the stereotypical things that you think of when you think of those bad Christians who hate on queer people. They were loving and kind. And they lovingly and kindly pushed him into conversion therapy. Not the kind you think about with electrodes and smelling salts. The talk therapy kind where you pray and you do your best to get rid of your unwanted sexual attractions. Braden did this because he loved his family. He didn't even buy into it. He didn't think of himself as somebody who needed to be changed. He didn't think there was something wrong with him. He didn't think God had a problem. Inside, he knew he was fine. But outside, he, he wanted to please his parents. He was a teenager, 13, 14, 15, 16, through the course of the book. In order to be part of his loving, wholesome, really nice family, he sort of went along with them. And Dodd's story shows us how that process led to the development of self-loathing that he didn't even realize that he had and led one night to those train tracks. The, the plot development where the insidious nature becomes shockingly yeah. revealed. Yeah. yeah, the good-natured intent of everyone involved. The, if there's a villain in the story, it's Braden's mother, but she's not a monster. She's a sincere person of faith who wants the best for her son, and that almost kills her son. That's what I related to so much. When I was 18 years old, a university freshman, I climbed up on the railing of, of a very high set of stairs at a tower in my university, at my university, and I came within seconds of launching myself off of that railing. Wow. And for the same reason, my family very are very nice people. They're also very conservative Christians. I don't think any of their attitudes about gay people are, are nearly as negative as they, they were back then. But for me, having grown up in that sort of environment, having the approval of my family and my church meant everything to me. And knowing that I could not be true to myself and remain a loving, blessed son, knowing that, drove me to the top of that railing. And it happens too much today with gay, trans, bisexual, non-binary kids. The statistics over the last few years are horrifying. In the Trevor Project's latest survey, the numbers of LGBTQ kids who have been thinking about suicide and attempting suicide have been going up on a steep curve. It's just, it's staggering. It's horrifying. It's a reaction to the bullying that's been happening since 2016, Drew? That's right. I was about to add that the increase that we see in suicidal ideation and in suicide attempts closely tracks the increase that we see in bullying. Gelson, the queer advocacy group, Gelson has been tracking bullying rates for many, many years in schools. That's what they do. They, Gelson helps queer kids in schools. 
you might have heard of GSAs, gay straight alliances, right, or, right. or right. as they call them nowadays, gender sexual alliances, to be inclusive of, of more queer people than just gay people. Gelson is also the leading facilitator of GSAs. But besides GSAs, they do every two years, they do a survey where they contact thousands of queer kids across the United States, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different geographical areas, and they ask about bullying and violence in schools. And so since 2016, the reported rates of bullying have gone up just amazingly sharply. And so have rates of reported violence. If you look at Trevor Project's data, tracking attempted, tracking suicidal ideation and suicide attempts, that sharp upward curve starting in, in 2016, and then you look at Gelson's curve tracking school bullying and violence, you might as well overlay one on top of the other. The similarity is startling. 2016 is not a coincidence. These curves started shooting up in 2016. This is me saying this. This isn't the researcher saying this because they can't look at cause and effect. But what I'm saying is that that's when the Trump era started. That's when the Republican Party began to normalize bashing, publicly bashing queer people and made it part of their political strategy. Right. And so I'm saying that it's not a coincidence that bullying and mental health problems began to rise at the same time. And we see things are getting worse now. I mean, Trump was just the beginning. He made it okay to be publicly homophobic and transphobic again. Mm, yep. And the party has taken off with it now. I mean, you think Trump is bad. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, I mean, he's taken things to the next level. Mm. He's saying things that Trump never dared to say. If you can believe that, if you can believe that Trump didn't dare to say something, <laughs> because we all know that he'll say whatever he's thinking. And what just recently got legalized in Tennessee? Well, Tennessee's done a bunch of things lately. They've criminalized gender-affirming therapy for trans kids. They've gone a long way toward outlawing drag shows in public, although there's some controversy about what that law would actually do. And their most recent oh. one is, if you show up to get your marriage license, the oh, right. <laughs> yeah, you can now be legally denied it. That's still a bill that's progressive. It hasn't been signed into law yet. Oh, but uh, I, I think it probably will. Yeah. I'm curious. This so dovetails. I remember back in 2015 when the movie Spotlight came out. The Boston Globe's intensive research on this child molestation within the Catholic Church. They turned it into a very powerful movie. Okay. And I was quite pleased when it won Best Picture of the Year, thinking that given the topic and given the nature of the church, it would get slightly pushed aside, but it actually won the top spot. Oh, wow. And part of what I want to tickle out of our conversation here is faith brainwashing. Okay. And faith being a double, triple, third level, I mean, there's faith in a, in a belief system, there's faith in yourself, there's faith in your family. Mm -hmm. The original article that we launched this conversation, what we're looking at is the protagonist having, Braden having faith in his family initially, right? Yes. And yes. how that twisted itself to the point to where he's ready to check out. So mm -hmm. 
between faith brainwashing and it's that is not something new that's been around for quite some time. I grew up in a Catholic household. I grew up knowing that the Roman Catholic Church was an evil, evil entity. But when you're growing up in a devoutly Roman Catholic Church, you can't quite tell your mother the Roman Catholic Church is evil. Right. Right. <laughs> and now we dovetail this faith brainwashing into the, for all practical words, fascism. It is a fascism that's beginning to grow palpable, isn't it? Yeah. So I addressed that in one of my latest articles on Medium, talking about fascism in Florida and calling Ron DeSantis a true fascist. I don't, I don't want to dig into all of that right now, but I mean, the definition of fascism is important. I don't like to trivialize it by calling people or organizations fascist unless they actually meet those fairly strict definitions. But I think that place where Ron DeSantis wants to take the Republican Party is a truly fascist place. I think that he's doing it in much the same way that some of the original fascists did in the 1930s by demonizing minorities and demonizing queer people. Some of the original fascists, we think of anti-Semitism, that was very important and that's critical and I don't wanna lose sight of that because what the Nazis, for example, did to the Jews should never be trivialized. It should also be remembered, and I like to remember that some of those, those same people who were persecuting the Jews were sending gay and trans people to the death camps and that after the war ended, when British, Canadian, and American forces were liberating the death camps. They didn't liberate queer inmates. They sent them to German prisons as criminals. Now that's a factoid you don't hear often, folks. Were you no. aware of that? It's something that, that I've known you know, for decades, but I think a lot of people don't know it. And uh, it's come out more lately. You, you read a little bit more about that in the popular press than you used to, and I'm glad. What I'm really trying to point out is that the sort of authoritarian state bullying that we think of as fascism mm -hmm. yep. is certainly it's a quest for state power. It's a quest for personal power and control, but it's normally achieved by demonizing and marginalizing minorities and presenting them as a threat to society, as a contagion to society that needs to be eliminated in order to make society safe again. And that's exactly what we see the Republican Party doing today. We see it in many, many state leaders like Governor Abbott in Texas. We see it from Governor DeSantis in Florida. In the case of DeSantis, it's particularly frightening because he could very well be the next president of the United States. True, but we also see it right in our own home. See, that, that's the part that I think I'd like to dive a little deeper into is this internalized okay. homophobia. I mean, when you are sharing that gay and lesbian community members are having a problem with what you're posting, and you're simply posting the facts, <laughs> that's the one thing I enjoy about your writing is while you do have a, a lovely way of, of balancing your wit with your wisdom, you don't take dramatic license with the facts and you present your material with Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here are the facts, draw your own conclusions, at least here are the resources that you can use to draw your own conclusion. The yes. insidious nature of internalized homophobia, that's got to have run through your thought process as well, true? It does. And let me, let me talk about it this way. 
I read the most extraordinary op-ed in the Washington Post on March 6th by a wonderful writer by the name of Kate Cohen. This is the title of the article of the op-ed, Why Are We So Tolerant of Churchy Bigotry? She starts her piece off by talking about her 12-year-old who received an invitation to join a very exclusive choir at Albany's Episcopal Cathedral. They tour the nation sometimes, a renowned sacred music group. She didn't give it a second thought. She was immediately proud, like, yay, I mean, let's make this happen because this is an incredible opportunity for him. And then he asked her a question, but mom, how are they on LGBTQ people? This is a Christian church today. Are they okay with gay marriage? Or do they call queer people sinners? In her mind immediately, she said, turned to this debacle that happened a few weeks ago in Pensacola, where a Christian college disinvited the world-renowned Cambridge University singing group, the King Singers, because one of them was gay. Uh-huh. She called the music director who runs the choir, and she asked him, and he said, well, no, unfortunately, we're not there yet on LGBTQ issues, but we're trying to get better. And she relayed that to her son, and she said, well, tell them when they get better, then I can sing with them. Rock on and i bring this example up because people don't do that because people don't do that and a little child shall lead them this mother points out and the reason she wrote the column is that she says something inside of us as a culture we're, we just accept this this is a, a world-renowned choir in the episcopal church in the united states which is generally considered you know pretty liberal and they don't accept gay couples as being fundamentally equal and dignified and free. Well, they consider them to be sinners is what they do. And nobody ever says anything about that. It's very rare. Do you sense, Jim, it's more of a, just because there's so much bandwidth, pick your battle sort of thing, kind of an apathy? Or do no, you sense I, I a, think, a fear? I, no, no. I think that it's internal homophobia. Ah, okay. I do. And I know people will say, well, no, 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 no. I have a colleague, a writing colleague, who is an employee of the Anglican Church in England, and he's gay. And after everything that happened last summer and through the autumn with the Anglican Church saying no to gay marriage and, and the Archbishop of Canterbury making extremely clear that gay people are sinners and that the church will not change that theology, my writing colleague is still an employee of the Anglican Church in England. And he's out? He's out. And, and to his credit, he's publicly out. His position is that he's in a better place to fight for change than if he weren't an employee of the church. And I can credit him a little bit with that. I mean, I understand why somebody would say that, but too many of us do that. I mean, whether we're gay, straight, or allies, or, or whatever, we're so accustomed to organized religion saying whatever they want about queer people and getting a pass for it. We don't really believe it. We don't buy it. But we go through the motions, and pretty soon it's like cognitive behavioral therapy in reverse. It's like even though we didn't really used to believe it, and even though we didn't really used to buy it, because we keep practicing it, because we keep etching those circuits into our brain, pretty soon we're behaving as if it were true. 
too few of us are like this 12-year-old singer. No, mom, I'm not okay with that. I won't practice that. And I, I just wish more of us were like him. Well, you bring up something that is so systemic that even those original content creators for conversion therapy have since A, come out, B, publicly, vocally stated that that conversion therapy that they created is harmful. That's right. Every <laughs> single major program, conversion therapy or reparative therapy program in the United States has disbanded, pretty much saying exactly that. And yet new ones keep popping up. They're changing their language a little bit. In many cases now, ex-gay organizations claim that they no longer support conversion therapy and they talk about living celibate lives. But then if you dig into what they're doing, they're still running programs to help people overcome unwanted same-sex attraction. Right. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. If you're trying to diminish your unwanted same-sex attraction through counseling and prayer, you're in conversion therapy. That's what it <laughs> yeah. is. Yes. And there is, a, unbeknownst, there's a faith brainwashing. It's like, I'm going to be delivered from this if I just keep up. Your friend who is working from the inside out, I remember back in the day when I was a member of Dignity. Dignity, mm -hmm. I've lost track of whether they're still alive or not. Not, but. not only is Dignity USA still alive, but the executive director and I exchange emails all the time. Ah, okay. There you go. So there is still the faith that from working from within the system. Now, granted, we do have a current Pope who bless the sinner. But oh, don't get go. me going. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> hey, I pulled the pin. It's your turn. Just getting back to the self-loathing a little bit, the internalized homophobia. The executive director of Dignity USA is not internally homophobic at all. <laughs> She, just to make that clear, just to make, just that, to clear. make that clear, Marion Duddy Burke takes a very strong, uncompromising position with respect to Catholic theology, and she overtly pushes for changes to that theology. I believe that her public position and her unwavering, uncompromising stand insulates her from the sort of self-loathing process that I was talking about. If I can pull the camera back for a minute, I mean, we're talking about families and people and churches right now, but why in a broader way? Gay and trans people are legitimate targets for hate and criticism. You can't go anywhere near social media with a rainbow flag in your profile without getting a lot of hate for it. People just take for granted that it's okay to hate on us. And religion, it's in the United States, in Conservative Christianity in the United States is the main reason for that, because people grow up in churches and communities where those negative beliefs are taken for granted. Even those of us who are liberal and progressive grow up believing that it's not okay to strongly criticize somebody's religious beliefs, even if those religious beliefs cause harm to the point that we see today with LGBTQ youth suicide rates skyrocketing. At some point, liberal and progressive people have to be willing to face the dragon. On they a have daily, to... daily basis, not just- They do, and I'm getting yep. to that. <laughs> but, okay. but before we do it on a daily basis, we have to be willing to say, 
your religious beliefs are horrible. Stop it. Religion is no excuse for your horrible beliefs. You are a homophobic bigot, and being a conservative Christian doesn't in any way excuse that. Bingo. And people won't say that, cannot bring themselves to go there. Because until somehow it's we, too late. Until, until it's, it's too late. Until their son or daughter is buried in the right, ground. And even right. then, even then, I have had parents who have experienced a suicide because they don't want to disappoint their parents. Yeah. Even so, then. So one of, one of my other really big stories on Medium, I wasn't going to go there right now, but I'd better do it because the conversation has brought us to that point. I interviewed a mother last summer and her son two hours after they got home from the hospital where the son had tried to kill himself at 16 years old. Wow. Tried to kill himself for the second time. Good heavens. He fell in love with the boy at church. The boy kissed him. They developed a relationship for several months. Both of them decided that they didn't believe that what they were being taught in church about gay people was wrong. Then they got caught. The other boy's family found some chat logs and all hell broke loose. The boy I interviewed went to pastoral therapy a few times at the urging of his mother, and he tried to kill himself. She was horrified, of course. I mean, this is, she's a good mother. Don't, she was doing what she thought was right, but it, it almost killed him. And what was so horrifying is that after the first suicide attempt, she didn't change her mind. She still thought that she had to follow her religion and that, that the pastors were right. That if she prayed hard enough, that if they did just the right therapy and whatever and so forth, their son would be healed, cured, forgiven of his sins, what have you. Well, guess what? He tried to kill himself again. While he was still in the hospital, how she heard of me, I have no idea, but while he was still in the hospital, she contacted me and I had a couple phone calls with her. and. She wanted me to know that, that she was desperately sorry for how wrong she had been. And then when he got home from the hospital a couple of days later, I called up and had a conversation with both of them. It's hard to take knowing that that's how deeply immersed she was in her faith. She's not a member of some cult. She's a Southern Baptist. She was a church secretary at a very nice Southern Baptist church in her Texas town. When she changed her mind and when she told the community that she had to support her son and that, that she no longer believed that, that God has a problem with being gay, she lost her job at church. And then the community, the, the congregation, the church community all but ostracized her. That's how deeply embedded this stuff is. And, and again, this is not one of those crazy churches that they call for the death of gay people. It's an ordinary Southern Baptist church in an ordinary Texas suburb. That is how deep the roots go when it comes to faith-based systems, is that parents can somehow take solace that they're doing everything by the book until they have to literally reject the book. Until they can reject the book, they're going to continue banging their head against the wall. Not everybody's like this 12-year-old choir boy. Lots of society just isn't where he's at. They're not willing to say, no, I'm not going to participate in this prized opportunity because you're homophobes. Too many people are conditioned to simply accepting that religious people believe certain things that are very harmful to queer people and that that's just the way it is. But in my articles lately, I've been asking people to please stand up, please help. Not queer people. We've got enough on our plates. 
you know, just reading the news every day is enough to drive some people to despair. But for our allies, our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, all these good people, the majority of Americans are on our side. The majority of Americans are just fine with same-sex marriage, are just fine with that people, are just fine with dignity and equality and respect for queer people. The loud minority who are not don't understand how much most Americans disapprove of their bigotry and their hatred and their mistreating people. I've been asking people, I've been asking allies to start wearing pins, pride pins or trans pins or, or anything in the colors that let people know that they're standing up for LGBTQ people. Like we used to do with the AIDS ribbon. You know, you couldn't walk down the street without seeing people. You couldn't go to the grocery store without seeing some, at least some people with red ribbons. It became a ubiquitous fashion statement. And it did a lot of good because it showed people how much support there was for finding effective treatment, for nurturing, succoring, you know, sick people and, and being decent because that's what the red ribbon stood for, super decency. Right, right. And, and it let that small minority of haters know that people weren't cool with their hate. And, and I wanna see that again, not that HIV and AIDS is, is over. We need to do something about this wave of youth suicide. And one yes. way that we can do that we need to show, first of all, wearing pride pins or ribbons or whatever, wearing rainbow paraphernalia, that here's a person who supports you. But more to the point, I think it'll show that small minority of haters that there are people all around you who are not okay with that and are willing to stand up and say so. And that's what I'm calling daily public solidarity. Go out with your rainbow on. Go out with your rainbow pin. Go out with your rainbow scarf. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know well, what I mean. It, it, so. The state of Hawaii is their symbol is the rainbow on every license plate. There is the rainbow. Uh -huh. I mean, I could so, I could get by with wearing a rainbow. Yeah, so that might, not, <laughs> that might not work so well in Hawaii, though. I mean, here where I live in rural Michigan, you go out with a rainbow pin on, people know what it means. You're causing whiplash. If I may, Jim, I want to tap into something directly to parents because okay. you have been a father, a gay dad. You're, yes. What would you tell parents to do for their kids to be okay. more advocates in schools, for example? Let's, let's get focused. Actually, the kid I raised was straight. Kids can be advocates. You help raise a child who's straight. How right. would you as a father, regardless of your sexual orientation, but the fact that you're a gay man who raised a straight child, how would you instruct straight parents to raise straight kids where kids can be more effortlessly an advocate? I think kids, first of all, teenagers in today's society are a lot cooler than adults. Kids know how to be advocates, I think. This 12-year-old in the Washington Post op-ed is far from being an anomaly. Kids today tend to be accepting and positive. I guess if I had anything to say to parents, it would be, if your child is standing up at school and uh, supporting LGBTQ people and the school has a problem with that, if the school has a problem, rainbow paraphernalia, et cetera, then let your kid know that you know they're doing the right thing. Let them know. Ah, there you go. Let them know that you support them and then do support them. If a teacher calls you and tells you that it's not okay for the child to continue speaking up in defense of, of LGBTQ people, or if it's not okay for the child to, to say wear a, a, a rainbow 
at the school and stand up for your child. Tell the teacher that he has your support and that you will certainly not allow your child to be silenced and that you will certainly send your child to school with a rainbow unless or until they somehow physically force your child to stop. And let them know that if they do that, you'll be calling up Lambda Legal and you'll see them in court. Bingo. There's what I'm looking for, ladies and gentlemen, is Jim, you'll have to forgive me, but until there's teeth to the teeth, I mean, action, reaction, until those who are advocating this fascism against <coughs> transgender, if I can sue a parent for taking care of my transgender child, then that transgender parent can sue the person suing them. And the person can lose their house. They can yeah. lose. And whether or not a lawsuit has any chance of succeeding, the, the, the point is powerful because we have to stop acting like queer equality is up for debate. Right, right. We have to do what that 12-year-old did in Albany. And we just have to say, no, I'm not going along with this. I'm not. As a society, we're not in a place where we're doing that yet. I, right. I wish we were, but we're not. It's 2023. 10 years ago, I would have predicted that by this point, any sort of public homophobia would be unacceptable and that it would have disappeared by now. But instead, things are worse today than they were 10 years ago. Things haven't gotten better. Homophobia hasn't disappeared. In fact, it's become more publicly acceptable and it's only being done by a majority. People are very small minority people. Yet the majority is not standing up and firmly saying no. Our allies are not doing a very good job right now. Would you say there's a correlation to how the U.S. has had to deal with racism? You would think by now we wouldn't sure. have to deal with racism. <clears throat> of but course. Until that one child had to be integrated into that schoolroom. I don't think we've still figured out how to navigate racism, but there's a parallel curve. When we think we shouldn't be by now, it's worse. I wonder if there's a parallel. Not only is there a parallel, it's a direct connection. It's a great big tangled knot, actually. Discriminating against people who are different is not obviously limited to queer people. Right, uh, right. Discriminating against people of color, against Black people, against Latino people, against immigrants, etc., as much back in style today as homophobic bigotry. And for exactly the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I write, I try very hard to always mention the intersectionality of the bigotry problem. I don't think that it's, it's particularly my job to delve into the details of racism because I'm not an expert, but the issues are so inextricably intertwined that it's impossible not to talk about it all at the same time. It's not just intersectionality. I mean, certainly a, a Black gay man experiences more discrimination in life than a white gay man. Certainly a black trans woman experiences much more discrimination in life than a cisgender white woman. And so we see direct intersectionality you know, in those two cases. But it's also important to point out that the racism and the anti-immigration, the anti-immigrant sentiment that we see is just as fascist and is just as rooted in fear of the other, not always with the same religious roots, although disturbingly we see some of the same religious players indulging the racism and the anti-immigrant sentiment. But again, this sort of loud racism that we're accustomed to today is being done by a, a small minority uh, 
and, and the majority, the good, decent Americans, most of whom are not okay with this, are also not okay with standing up firmly against it. God damn, it's time to take our country back, don't you think? Well, sadly, I'm recalling the Lutheran pastor in Germany who coined the, at first they came for. Yes, yes, Niemöller. So Martin Niemöller. My right. God, I mean, that was 1933 when Adolf Hitler came into power. Jim, they say history is our teacher, right? We've heard that cliche before. Yes. My point being, okay, if history is our teacher, what kind of parentheses, if any parentheses, students are we? I mean, what are we learning? How is it that we are once again faced with what was going on in the 1930s, right? Amen. I, I, I agree with you. The former Baptist boy says amen. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have certainly ripped open a few topics that clearly need more digesting. Thank you for listening to this. I know, Jim, that as your articles unfold on Medium, that we'll probably be touching more on some of these topics as well. Is it fair to say that if you need support to be supportive, that's what these talks are about, and that's what Jim's articles are about. There's a a, a deep well of information that you can use that it's just no, you do have support to be supportive of ending hate, ending prejudice, ending things that affect, as you say, the intersectionality of so many other communities. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Parting thoughts before we wrap. Uh, go out there with some rainbow colors on tomorrow, will you? Thanks. <laughs>